Romans chapter 5, verse 1, if you want to get to your uh, passage for the day, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Last week, we started a teaching series here at City Church. We like to teach in series. We'll focus on a particular topic for a number of weeks, and uh, we focused on uh, last week this idea of the atonement. The title of this series is Astonishing. We're looking at what Jesus accomplished uh, through his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf astonishing and uh, last week I really feel like God moved in a powerful way don't you if you're here the Holy Spirit really moved that was not very affirming by the way yes yes we all felt that the Holy Spirit moved in a powerful that God really spoke to us in a profound way we focused on this idea of, of what Christ has accomplished through his atonement he made us at one with the Father right we talked all about that and this week we're gonna ta- uh, tackle the topic of justification okay justification you may have have never heard an entire sermon on this idea of justification Maybe you have, but uh, that might be a completely new idea for you, or maybe it's something that you're very, very familiar with, but that's the topic of today's sermon, Justification, part two in the Astonishing series. And like I said, Romans chapter five, verse one. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Romans is in the New Testament, and it was written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, to the church of... Come on, you, you're sharp. You, everybody knows, right? Okay, good. To the Church of Rome. Yeah, no tricks here. To the Church of Rome, right? And just make sure you're paying attention. And uh, he wrote it to encourage the believers in Rome, the Christians in Rome, and to teach them what Christ had done for them. And so we're jumping right in in the middle of this uh, <clears throat> this letter, and we're going to be just reading one verse today in the letter. And uh, really, this verse has been unpacked through chapters one, two, three, and four. And so you can go back on your own time if you'd like. Read Romans one through four. But we're going to get sort of the synopsis of what he's been saying in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Romans chapter 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that little word in there, justified. Let's see it again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One more time. Let's look at those words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and open our hearts to God's Spirit this morning. God, we want to hear you as we meditate on that simple passage of Scripture. It has so much life in it, so much power in it. I pray in the name of Jesus that you help me communicate clearly today. God, I just say out loud, I need you so desperately. I pray for every one of us that you open our hearts to hear you clearly today. God, I pray for every person in the room, regardless of where they are currently at in their relationship with their creator, I pray that today you draw each of us closer. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. I remember June 17th, 1994. You may not remember that. You might have been two years old or you might have been 42, whatever your uh, <clears throat> stage of life is. I remember that day very clearly, June 17th, 1994, because uh, on 19, in 1994, June 17th, if you might maybe remember, uh, there was a Ford Bronco heading down the highway in California, and all of America stopped to watch this white Bronco driving down the highway because O.J. Simpson was running away from like a million police officers officers behind him. Do you remember this? Anybody remember this? And so on TV, all over America, people watched as OJ, going like 40 miles an hour, drove down the highway as all these police cars co- followed after him. And so I remember as a kid, I was just a 12-year-old kid, and uh, you're doing the math right now, yeah. So I was, I was like 12, I walked up, and, and I remember my parents and um, friends were watching. I said, what's going on? And they said, OJ's running from the cops. And I said, like, like OJ, the, the football player? And they were like, yeah, he, you know, he's gotten in trouble, and he's running from the police, and, and there's this whole, you know, issue, expe- you know, coming out and all this craziness he ends up getting arrested for the death of his ex-wife and one of her friends and then the trial begins and if you remember the mid 90s you know that the oj simpson trial was on tv non-stop and people were like binge watching oj's trial right like nine hours a day what's gonna happen and little by little uh they unfolded all these different interesting pieces of evidence you had dna evidence you had blood spattered here and there you had the glove anybody remember the glove all right, some of us, uh, you, uh, you, you know, you had all these different, the timetable, what was he here then, and what about this, and somebody saw screeching tires, on and on and on, and at the end of the day, October 3rd, 1995, the, uh, the verdict comes out, the jury stands, everybody waits, all of America is watching, and they decide that O.J. Simpson has been found not guilty of these murders, right? And the whole world, especially America, just stood back in awe. Some people were celebrating, some people were protesting, it was all types of craziness, but I think the most 
most of the response of the American people was kind of this moment of like, what are we going to do now? Like, all we've been doing is watching OJ for so long. Like, what are, what are we going to do? Like, there has to, we have to fill the void with something. Thank God for Martha Stewart, right? So Martha decides to do something crazy, and she throws herself in a, and we can all watch that. And so it was like, oh, well, now we can pay attention. And all through the late 90s into the 2000s came the rise and the explosive success of Judge Judy and People's Court and on and on. And the courtroom has become this incredibly volatile, incredibly intense, and highly uh, viewed experience in American culture. And even in recent years, we see it unfolding consistently. There was Scott Peterson. There was Trayvon Martin. There was same-sex marriage. There was Obamacare, Supreme Court decisions, all this stuff, people's eyes on the court, right, on the court. And there is this, this certain rush to the courtroom. You know what I'm saying? Not like rush like I'm running in the courtroom, but like this experience of like, oh, like something's exciting is happening in the courtroom. Maybe you've felt that rush from the courtroom when you were watching O.J. Simpson's trial or when you were following Martha Stewart or you were following, there's this exciting, invigorating rush. I can remember the first time I felt the rush of the courtroom. I was watching the movie My Cousin Vinny. And uh, you remember, I don't know if you remember that movie, but, uh, but Joe Pesci was up there. And, and I, you know, as a kid, Karate Kid was like where it's at. And so now Karate Kid's a little older and he's in that movie. And Karate Kid is, uh, is, is uh, convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. And so his, his uncle Vinny's got to go get him out. And I'm pulling for him. And I can remember just watching that movie as a kid. And they're talking about the sack of suds and the two youths and all this different stuff going on in the movie. And I'm just like, come on, Vinny, you got to come through. And at the end, he stands up in that ridiculous suit and he proves all these different points that it truly wasn't them. And they get set free and they dismiss the case and everybody celebrates. And there's this rush of like, oh, that was awesome. Maybe I'll be a lawyer, you know. That was so cool. You know, I don't know if you ever felt that rush before, but uh, I think that uh, maybe for you it was a time to kill, or maybe for you it was, not, not, not that now is a time to kill, as I'm saying, but the movie. And uh, or maybe for you it was some other movie, A Few Good Men, or maybe something more recent, whatever. But, uh, but we've all kind of had that sense of like, there's something special about these moments in court. When somebody gets free, when somebody gets convicted, it's just a powerful experience. Uh, what I've realized as I've thought about this, meditated on this is that the courtroom is deeper than just you know something we see on TV or something that you know we see in a movie the courtroom resonates in a deeper way with the human psyche there's something about this idea of the judge and the jury and the court that resonates very very deeply in your heart and I want to suggest to you that whether you realize it or not, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, if you're sitting in this room right now, I just want to suggest to you this morning that you are currently living in the courtroom. You are currently living in the invisible courtroom of life, okay? There is this judge and jury all around you. Uh, whether you realize it or not, the most obvious courtroom that you're living in is the courtroom of human opinion, right? The courtroom of other people's opinion and your own opinion about yourself. Every day, every moment, you are making millions of judgments about other people, about circumstances, about a shirt, about a, you know, uh, a, a dress, about a car, all these different things. You're judging other people when you see them. You're judging yourself when you look in the mirror you're deciding well did i did i put on a little weight or you know i i'm, I'm trying to do i look okay or is this shirt kind of big on me a little bit well big's cool it's big cool. i'm not sure you know like all these different things that we're deciding this is cool by the way just so you know uh, all these different things that we're deciding and some of us if we're honest are absolutely obsessed with the opinions of other people paralyzed by the opinions of other people, how would you judge yourself? Just out of curiosity, you don't have to like give yourself a, like a rating, but mentally just think about this. How would you judge yourself on the spectrum of obsessed with the opinions of those around you? You know, maybe you're a one, maybe you're a nine. Nine is like, I'm always obsessed, and one is like, I don't even care, right? I don't even comb my hair or brush my teeth, you know? And then, and then you know, and nine is on the other side. How would you, how would you kind of, uh, I can see some of you are ones for sure, uh, but uh, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but, um, you know, how would you rank yourself in the courtroom of human opinion? Where would you put yourself? You know, I think, honestly, most of the time, I kind of see myself as like a one or two, like, I really don't care that much what other people think. I feel like I'm free, you know? I feel like I'm not really that consumed with other people's opinions. And then I go to a wedding. You know, and then there's always that person. I have a friend. I'm not going to mention any names, but at, you know, that she goes to weddings and I've been to a couple of weddings where she's there and she just, she can't dance like zero, like cannot, but no one has told her. And if they have told her, she doesn't care. 
She is like at zero. She has no care for it. So she's up there like doing things that you should never do. And she's just dancing. And I'll be honest, when I'm at the wedding and they put on the, you know, Charlie Brown or whatever it is that you want to dance to, I'm in the corner like, dude, let me get some more cola. Like, what are we going to do? You know, I'm not the guy that's out there kind of like, you know, doing the things. And there's some guys that can dance, but if we're honest, the vast majority of us can't. And so you're just out there and you're like, oh, nobody notices how stupid I look. You know, you're just trying to survive, you know, and, uh, but then there's always that one person, you know who it is, you're thinking about somebody right now, that they're just like, I can't dance and I don't care. And they're just having fun out there, right? It's amazing. The courtroom of human opinion is not a very fair courtroom, right? It's really not. It's just not a fair courtroom. And so uh, you may be judged for this or judged for that. You may be consumed about what does your dad think or what does your mom think? What does your boss think or what does your professor think or what does your employer think or employee think or what does your neighbor think? I gotta keep that grass clean because my neighbor's gonna think I'm whatever your obsession might be. We all wrestle with these things. You pull up in your car and it's not quite as awesome as the car to the guy who pulls up next to you and uh and I remember when I was just a kid, you know, it just got my license. I felt like on the highway, if anybody, what an idiot, if anybody passed me, it was like a challenge, you know? And so I had like a 1986 Honda Accord, you know, that thing was lightning fast. And so I'd be, I'd be driving with the pop-up headlights, you know, and so I'd be driving and like somebody would pass me, I'm like, that's a challenge, you know, and I like try to, try to pass them. I remember one day I passed this, I'm off my notes by the way, but I passed this, this, uh, what's that Dodge, the Dodge uh, Viper, it was a Viper, this guy who was like obviously having a midlife crisis driving this Viper, and I just screamed past him in my Honda Accord like, yeah, sucker, I got big guns here. I mean, there was something in me that just needed to compare, you know, and I'm sure you wrestle with the same things, this courtroom of human opinion, maybe not the exact same things, but hopefully you're relating here to something I'm saying. There's this courtroom of human opinion, what other people say and think about me, but there's a second courtroom that's described in scripture, okay, so we we all are aware of the fact that whether we like it or not, there are opinions surrounding us, and we can decide how much or how little we're going to care about those opinions, but they're real. And yet there's also this second courtroom, and this is what I believe resonates very deep in our psyche, that we somehow even subconsciously are aware of the fact that this courtroom exists. This second courtroom is described consistently in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says it like this, for we all, somebody say all, all, that includes all of us, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that what each of us may so that each of us may receive what is due for us. <coughs> us for I'm having a hard time reading today for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So there is this judgment seat by which all of us will one day be judged. In Psalm 75, the scripture says that God is the judge, that there is an ultimate judgment and that God is the judge. Isaiah, the prophet, says it like this, the Lord will execute judgment. He will make sure that judgment comes to pass. In Revelation chapter 20, right at the end of the book, the apostle John sees a vision of what this day will be like, this day of judgment. He describes it like this. He said, and I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. That's an incredible description. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. The books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And so Christians believe that there will be an ultimate day of judgment, and that God is perfectly just as the judge. Now, last week we looked at this idea of the atonement, right? And we looked at the idea of how the just and holy God has kept an account of all the sins of all the world for all time. And we looked at the cup, right? Last week we talked about the cup. Those of you that were here, you remember this. Maybe those that weren't here, I encourage you to review it. But we talked about this idea of the cup, that God has a cup, and that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saw the cup, right? He's about to give his life for the ransom of the world, and he sees the cup of God. And in this cup is all the physical pain that he's going to endure, and in this cup is all the guilt for all the sin of all those who would turn to Christ through all time and would be forgiven. And in this cup is all the wrath of a just and holy God who must pour out his hellfire judgment upon every person who has ever sinned. And in this cup are all these things, and Jesus see it, sees it, and he staggers. It's so immense, so incredible that the sight of it causes him to stagger. And so we looked at this idea of how through the atonement, Jesus identified with his people and he gave his life on the cross for the sins of the world that as many as would receive him, he would drink of their sins 
for all time. And so your sins are forgiven in Jesus. And this is mentioned again and again throughout the scripture. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that he has forgiven us of all our trespasses. Now, if God has forgiven the believer of all of his trespasses, this starts to mess with the mind that is bound in the confines of time. Right? Because the confines of time get weird. Like, wait a minute. How is it possible that Jesus has forgiven me of sins that I commit two weeks from now? How is it possible that Jesus has already, and here is God who is transcendent outside of time, who sees the beginning to the end. He sees every sin you've ever committed. He already wrapped it up. He already put it in the cup, and Jesus already drank it. So in the eyes of God, the great eternal judge, you are forgiven of all your transgressions, past, present, and future. Right? And the scripture tells us in Ephesians 1 that he does this according to the riches of his grace the riches of his grace prophetically decreed in psalm 103 it says this check it out it says as he does not treat us as our sins deserve that's good news isn't it we all doing okay this morning he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his love for those who fear him as far this is my favorite part of the verse by the way as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Wow. Isn't that incredible? So what we believe in the atonement is that Jesus has forgiven the believer. And so when I come to Christ, when I turn from sin, when I open my heart up to God, I'm no longer forgiven by the accuracy of my confession because you always forget to confess things. There's sins you don't even know about. If you're justified by the accuracy of your confession, you'll never have confidence. I'm not forgiven based upon the merit of my works. I'm not forgiven based upon the, uh, the you know, great wisdom that I attain. I am forgiven based upon his lavish grace. Isn't that beautiful? Can we say thank you, Jesus, for that? Can we say we're grateful for that, God? Those of us that believe that, isn't that the best news on planet Earth? That is incredible, amazing, supernaturally compelling news. Jesus has forgiven me, past, present, and future. The problem is that that doesn't explain Romans chapter 5, verse 1. See, it doesn't say in Romans 5, verse 1, that he has forgiven us by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, although that is true. And it does state that in many other instances in the scripture. It says, therefore, having been forgiven by faith, we have peace with God. That's not what it says. It's not what it says. Even though other places in the Bible, we do know that that is true. Having been forgiven by faith, we do have peace with God. But that's not what the scripture says. It uses a different word to describe our relationship with God. And this is where things get a little splashy. This is where we have to build now on what we discovered last week. It says, therefore, having been, what's the word? Justified, right? Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, sometimes we hear these religious words and we struggle with what they mean. We go, well, what does that mean? Here's the good news. You already know what justified means. You do. Use it in a sentence. You know how it, what it means. So if you, you know, did something and someone said, hey, that's not right, and you say, well, I feel that I'm justified in that decision, right? Or someone, you know, is on TV and they say, well, what did you do? What was the decision you made? And you say, well, uh, I feel that my actions were justified. What do they mean? They mean that my actions were correct. What do they not mean? They don't mean my actions were forgiven, right? Right? That's not the same word. It's not the same meaning. If you were, you're not saying I feel like I'm justified. That's not saying I feel like I'm forgiven. It means I feel like I'm right, right? Does everybody know what this word means? Okay, good. All right, so justified. It means that I'm correct. It means that I'm right. It means that I'm warranted. It means that I'm proven true. Remember when you had to write papers in school? Oh, I'm trying hard to forget that. Okay, well, you had to write papers in school, right? Some of us did when you, yeah, okay. And so you had some papers in school, and you had to, you had to justify the text, did you not? You had to either make it left justified or right justified or center justified, whatever it is. But when you justified that text, what did it do? It made a nice clean line, right? Everybody tracking with this? So Microsoft Word, come on, go back in your mind. You justified the text, and when you did, everything lined up properly. We all tracking so far? And so imagine for a second, let me try to illustrate this. This is helpful for you. This helped me when I was studying this. Imagine that, uh, that you failed a test. Now, I know none of us ever have failed a test, but imagine you did, right? And you walk in to the, uh, the, the teacher and you say, you know, I'm really sorry I failed this test. I'm so upset, blah, 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 blah. And the teacher decides to display mercy unto you, right? And he says, you know what? Um, here's what I'm going to do. I am not going to count that F towards your grade point average. There's 15 tests this semester. We're going to just remove that one. You're going to be judged on 14 grades instead of 15. You would say, wow, that's great. Have you been justified? No. You've been forgiven, right? There's a difference. Imagine you had a bunch of credit card debt, right? Of course you don't. I'm sure none of us have ever used a credit card irresponsibly, but imagine you did. 
right? Imagine you had some credit card debt, maybe $15,000 in credit. You stacked it up big time, and you got all these different ones, and, and you meet with the different companies, and somehow through a concoction of agreements, they decide that they are going to absolve you of that debt, and they forgive you of your debt. You no longer have any credit card debt. Now, that's good news, right? And we all want that phone number, but that's not justification. Your decisions aren't justified. They're just forgiven. You see the difference? Everybody doing okay? So when the Apostle Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, he is saying something uniquely different than having been forgiven, okay? And we saw last week how Christ can justly forgive us because of what was accomplished on the cross and because of the cup. We saw that, but now we see that he did not just forgive us, that the revelation of what God has done in Jesus goes further, wider, broader, and deeper than forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean we're not grateful for forgiveness of sins. We are, but it goes even further. I remember as a kid, the story of the prince and the paupers. Anybody remember that one? Mark Twain? Okay, not so many of us. Good. That's all right. I'll, I'll tell you the story. You might have seen the Mickey Mouse version. <clears throat> you might have not. I actually hadn't thought of it for a long time until I watched the Mickey Mouse version with my kids a couple weeks ago and, and just reminded me of the story. But it's this story about these two kids, right? And they look very, very similar. And one happens to be the Prince of England, and the other happens to be a very poor street kid. And so they end up running into each other through random circumstances and realizing that they look very, very similar. And they decide that they're going to trade places. And so the pauper goes into the kingdom and becomes the prince, and the prince goes into the streets and becomes this street kid. They exchange clothes, they, they go their separate ways, and the, uh, it's really a story of how the, this, this prince goes into the streets and sees the brokenness of his own nation, and he ends up getting beaten by the pauper's father who thinks that he's his son. He ends up getting treated unjustly in all these different circumstances, and it's this story of how this great prince identifies with the people right but it's also a story about the exaltation of the poor kid it's not just one way this is the great thing about the story there's a second way that this story plays out the poor kid all of a sudden puts on a robe and he is given great authority and his word becomes law and people listen to him and respect him because he looks identical to the prince Theologians call that double imputation. It's a weird, big theological word that you're not going to find in the Bible, but it has incredible purpose and meaning. What we understand in Scripture, stay with me this morning. This might be a little weird for your brain, but I'm telling you, if you will try this idea on, it brings incredible freedom. What we discover in Scripture is that God works through representatives. Just as we have, we discussed last week, the president that represents the nation in the same way God saw representatives for the race of humanity. Every, every different color, every different age, the race of humanity he sees in one and so he saw the race in Adam and because of Adam's sin he poisoned the seed of humanity bringing sin on all people that's what the scripture describes so all people sin by nature and by choice we have rebelled against God through pride and lust and greed and fear and guilt and all these different things that we do day by day we sin and so Adam gave us this sin and he was our representative but then God comes with a second representative that's what we discussed last week who is Christ he is what's called the last Adam or the second man, the second representative. Remember, Adam means man. And so we've got man one, we've got man two, who now represents all men and women for all time. And he stands before God the Father, not born of the seed of Adam, not inheriting the sinful nature, but instead fully human and fully God, lives perfectly among humanity and dies as a substitute for the sins of the world, thus having all of your sin, if you're a believer in Christ, poured out upon Jesus on the cross. This is the the beauty of it but the wild thing about God's truth is it goes both ways look at it with me in scripture in Romans chapter 5 verse 18 it says yes Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone but Christ's one act of righteousness see that's the one direction now here's the other direction that's not a band reference but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone because one person disobeyed God many became sinners but because because one person obeyed God, many will be, look at those next two words, made righteous. Does it say made forgiven or does it say made 
righteous. Look at it again in 2 Corinthians 5, where the scripture says this, God made him who had no sin. Now, there's only one person that qualifies for that description, right? That's Jesus. So Christians believe that Jesus was sinless, fully God, fully man. And God took that God man who was on the cross and made him to be sin for us, to be sin for us, so that in him we might, look at the next little phrase, become, become, this is an identity thing, become the righteousness of God, become the righteousness. Here's the mind-blowing reality of justification. What we see here is that the exchange has actually gone both ways, so that when God the Father poured out his wrath for your sins on Jesus, simultaneously in Jesus, Jesus stood in the judgment seats of eternity before his Father, and when God saw him, he saw you, so that now when God sees you, he sees Christ. The righteousness of God. In other words, he didn't just give you an F. He didn't just remove the F, right? It's all, I got an F on a test, I failed. He didn't just remove the F. He replaced that F with an A+. He didn't just make you neutral. He made you positively accepted in his sight, okay? He didn't just remove the $15,000 credit card debt you had. He also filled your bank account with millions of dollars. Not naturally. You're like, whoa, all right. No, in the spirit, this is exactly what God did for you. And so what we see in the scripture is that to the same degree, check this out, to the same degree that Christ's embodied your sin, past, present, and future, to that degree, he now exchanges for you and gives you by faith his perfection, past. Now the Father, this is crazy, this is God's view. You may say, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, I don't get it, I don't understand. You know what, the good news is that God's the judge, not you. So maybe you've been living in the court of human opinion your whole life, maybe you've been concerned about what this person says and what that person says, but when the Supreme Court rules, every other court has to fall in line, right? And so what we see is that God sees this exchange in eternity take place, and he views the believer in Christ with all of the righteous perfection of Jesus, and he once and for all swings the gavel, doesn't just say not guilty, he says justified, correct, lined up, true, blameless, perfect in my sight. So we begin to ponder this idea. When Jesus walked the earth and performed miracles, whose account of righteousness were they accrued to? Every single miracle in the scripture, you realize God has accrued to your account in Jesus. All the ones that Jesus, that Jesus performed. When Jesus said yes to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, this blows my mind. When Jesus freely volunteered before the Father, like we saw last week, and said yes to God, the righteousness accrued to his account because of that humble yes. That was for you. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5, 1, therefore, 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 having been justified. Now you see it? Having been justified, made correct, proven true by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, justified. You ever get lost in the mall? Come on, be honest. Big mall. You ever got lost in the mall? I get lost in the mall. I get lost in supermarket. I get lost in airports. I get lost everywhere. I'm not very good with that thing. I don't know what you call it, but getting places with lots of signs. And uh, I get focused on one thing. I don't pay attention, and then I find myself somewhere. And it's just, like, annoying for me to have to focus on that. And so I don't focus on it, and then I get lost. And so uh, my wife just leads me around by the hand. That's really true. But when we're at the mall, I frequently, especially if she's not with me, get lost. And we don't go to the mall that often, maybe for this reason. But uh, I, I don't like not knowing where a store is. And so it's like, man, I'm trying to get to this store. But every time I turn, I'm in a different part of the mall, and it doesn't seem that the store is where it's supposed to be. And then you find that glorious revelation, right? That map. And the map's got everything listed on it, right? And somewhere on that little map, there's a person. And it says there, what does it say? You are here. Oh, isn't that good news, right? Isn't that good news? You are here. That's where I am. And now that I know where I am, I can see where everything else is in relation to that. You see, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 is the map in the mall. 
That's what it is. It's saying, hey, you are here. Now, you can act like you're not here, and you can pretend that you're not here, and you can never live in the freedom of knowing that you are here if you so choose. But the revelation of Romans 5.1 is that God has said, the perfect judge has legally decreed for all time that if you are a believer in Jesus, you are here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So then we have to ask the question, you all doing okay so far? We have to ask the question, well then hold on a second how do i get there what is the process by which i am justified well the scripture tells us a little sentence but it tells us a whole lot it says therefore having been justified by works no of course that's not what it says it says having been justified by faith i have peace with god now christians because we love works love to mystify faith you might say i don't love works yes you do you're always trying to earn God's favor. You're always trying to do enough for him to like you. We, in our pride, always resist the free grace of God naturally. See, only the broken and the humble can fully embrace God's free grace. In fact, I would say to you that probably, whether you're aware of it or not, the biggest problem in your life is trying to earn what God's already given you. That's a whole other sermon, though, so we'll stay focused. Okay, so this idea of faith, we try to complicate it. Well, faith is pretty complicated there. Even though Jesus is like, listen, you could have the tiniest, idiotiest, littlest piece of faith, but if you just have some faith and, uh, and believe in the right object, right, in the right direction, you'll be saved, right? And so he doesn't say you have to have this gigantor faith. He says, in fact, you can move mountains with just a little tiny bit of faith, right? And so he says it's very simple, and yet we make it very complex. We're like, oh, no, faith must be have a revelation of future, you know, no, no, hold on. Let me just give you a real simple description of what faith is. Reliance. Trust. Dependency. That's what faith is. How many of us like going on an airplane? Anybody like flying? Like flying? How many of us are not so keen on flying? Come on, let's be honest. We'll pray for you. All right. So lots of us. Yeah, someone's like, I don't want to fly. You know, I don't want to fly. Now, I don't mind flying. I don't, I don't mind going on an airplane. But I do have to admit that when I go on an airplane, I do weird things. All right? I'm just going to confess this to you, and maybe you can pray for me this week. When, when I go on an airplane, I, I just do funny little weird things. Like, like if I'm sitting next to a, the wing, I will find myself looking at the wing to make sure that it's not going to fall off. I'll be looking at it like, all those little bolts tightened out there, you know? Like, I don't know anything about the wing. But you ever notice that, like, most planes, but yeah, he's upset about that. The most planes, the, the wing just looks so raggedy. Like, there's, like, these bolts that look all rusted, and I'm looking out on that wing, and I'm like, I think that wing's going to fall off. I might have to say something to somebody. We might have to get out there with a screwdriver. Maybe I, I bring a screwdriver with me. They wouldn't let me get through the, 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 the thing with it. But, but, you know, that wing, and I just, and then, and then I'll be honest, this has gone through my mind before, and then the, uh, the pilot codes on the loudspeaker. Hello, folks. You know, he's over there telling you this or telling you that. We're going to have a tailspin, a tail. Well, nobody knows what you're talking about, but he's up there talking about all these different things. And here's what I'm listening for. Is he slurring his speech? Is that guy drunk? Because I don't want a drunk guy flying my plane. Right? Has he had a few bottles of whiskey or what's going on up there? How's the co-pilot? Let's hear his voice now. You know, like, like in my mind, I mean, come on now. Like in my mind, I'm trying to like, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to do. As if I have any control at all. Like if I'm going to go up to the stewardess and say, excuse me, ma'am, he sounds like he's slurring his speech just a little bit. And I think there's a few bolts on the wing that are a little loose. Do you think you could tighten those bolts and make sure that that guy's not drunk, give him a breathalyzer? Like, no, it's not going to happen. I have got to just trust that the system in place has checked all those bolts. And I have to trust that the pilot is prepared and ready to fly the plane. The only thing I can do, I can't lift my butt off the seat to hopefully make it easier for them to take off. The only thing I can do is buckle my seatbelt and sit back and engage in the journey, right? That's faith. Reliance. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be my strength. It's not going to be my power. It's not going to be my ability. I am just going to trust. And when I do that, I can go faster and further than any other means of travel. You see that? Having been justified by faith, it's reliance, it's trust, it's rest. I want to tell you that if there ever was a pilot who could be proven, who could be trusted, it's Jesus, the great champion and captain of our soul. He's the one that from the beginning of the book to the end has proven true. He's the one that's always been faithful. He's the one that's fulfilled every prophetic utterance about the coming Messiah. He's the one that stepped into human flesh. He's the one that put the crown of thorns on his head. He's the one that was naked on the tree to take the shame of Adam. He's the one that became the second man and the last Adam. He's the one that rose from the dead and they still can't find his body. He's the one that healed the sick and opened the eyes of the blind. And he's the one that said, I'm coming back. He is trustworthy. He's the 
most trustworthy person in human history. He is the one that you can rely on. So sit down, buckle your seatbelt, and rest. Having been justified by faith. What's the result? This is my favorite part. I left the favorite part for last. Having been justified by faith, we have shalom. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Hebrew people understood this concept of shalom. It's not something that we really grasp. We have peace with God, peace with God. Now, this is written in Greek in the New Testament, so that word shalom doesn't appear there, but it's the inferred interpretation of that word, that, that it's the same Hebrew concept of shalom, this peace. Now, some of us think we have peace with God, like the United States has peace with Iran, you know? Like, we're not killing each other today, right? Like, that's like, that's like some people's view of peace with God. But that's not what shalom means. Shalom does not mean the absence of hostility for the moment. That's not what shalom means. Having been justified by faith, we have permanent, expansive, wholeness, completeness. Literally, one translation of shalom is nothing lacking. Shalom. We have peace with God. They use it as a greeting, and they use it as a departing word. Shalom. Goodbye. Hello. Complete. Whole. Sound. Full. And Jesus makes this statement in John chapter 15. Come on, this is going to get better. In John chapter 15, he says to his disciples, and he told his disciples to teach us what he had taught them. So this applies directly to you. He says this. He says, my peace. Come on, you got to get this in your mind because, friend, here's what I know. You're only tapping into a fraction of what justification means in your own life. He says, my peace I give to you. That's what he says. My, hold on a second, my unbroken, perfect, blameless, consistent communion with the creator that I have had for all of history and time, that unique relationship that I have with the Father, that incredible dance of perfect unity called shalom that the Son has with the Father, this relational unity that Jesus has, he says, my peace I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. How far? Here's a question I've been asking myself. How far did God take this whole identification with Jesus thing? Because certainly I'm not Jesus. I understand that. I'm not God. I never will be. Neither are you. We are forgiven. We are accepted. We are loved. But how far did God really take this whole idea of justification and identity? Well, let's look at a couple of quick things as we wrap up. How much does God love you? Some of us would say, well, he loves us a lot, you know, because he, you know, because he said so and because he, he died on the cross and all those things. He, God really loves me. Well, let's get a deeper understanding. John 17 says it like this. Jesus says this. He says, praying to the Father, he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me. Oh, that's the whole sermon. That they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know, check this out, that you sent me and have, look at this last little phrase, loved them even as you have loved me. If you have a Bible that's made of paper, you should probably underline that statement. Even as you have loved me. Even as how much does God love me? He loves me to the same degree that he loves his only son. How close can I come to God? How close can I come to God? How near can I be to him? Hebrews 10 says it like this. So, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Now, if it's called the most holy place, is there any more holy place than the most holy place, just for curiosity's sake? The most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and living, life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God. With sincere hearts fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood and makes us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. In other words, he's saying you can come as close to God the Father as Jesus the Son can come. This is how far God took justification. How powerful can my prayers be? You know, Justin, I'm messed up. I make mistakes. I don't know. I just, you know, I don't even know if God hears me. I'm just not sure. Well, if you go on your own merits, you're right. God won't hear you much. But if you go by faith in Christ, 
Look at what Jesus said. He said, very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. My prayers can be as powerful as if they were said out of the mouth of Jesus. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Have you trusted the pilot? You still trying to pick your butt off the seat and make sure the screws on the wings are nice and tight? Have you trusted the pilot? Have you heard the verdict? He swung the gavel. He said you're innocent. He said that the exchange has taken place. Have you seen the map in the mall that says you are here? I mean, you could live there, there, and there, but the reality is if you're a follower of Christ, you are here. If God has decreed it, the ultimate judge of all time, are you living in the peace that this provides? I want to invite you right now to live beyond your works. I want to invite you right now to live beyond the opinions of your peers. Church, I want to invite you to live beyond your emotions and find ultimate stability. This is how we conquer depression, anxiety, fear, lust, greed. See, many of us squirm at a message like this because we say, hold on, Justin, God wants us to be holy. God wants us to obey. If we tell him that we're already forgiven, doesn't that mean that we could just run off and sin tomorrow and not have to worry about it? Doesn't that mean that we don't have any accountability? Maybe you're a Christian here today and you've been trying to beat a sin for a long time. You've been trying to break this habit and break this cycle and it doesn't seem that you can do it and you keep coming back to God. You say, God, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. And you're in your mind hoping that once you obey, he'll then fully accept you. So your obedience, 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 obedience will one day lead to acceptance. And it's pretty frustrating, isn't it? It's frustrating because you put the cart before the horse. It's frustrating because you're doing it backwards. What the scripture decrees is that God makes a definitive judgment as the verdict of all time and as the judge of all creation about who you are. And once you embody by faith who you are, then the capacity to obey is released in your life. And so you accept that he has accepted you. You embrace that he loves you when you're a mess. You believe that he's made you righteous from the day you were born to the day you die you fully accept his unmerited favor and from that position of identity you find capacity to actually obey him and live holy friend that's the secret that's the secret of victory in christ of victory in jesus last week i told you there's a cup And in this cup that Jesus saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, he saw all the wrath. He saw all the pain. He saw all the guilt of all of your sin, believer. And he freely drank it. But right before that story... Right before that story, there's another story about how the Son of God gathered his closest friends. And there wasn't, in fact, one cup. There were two cups. And Jesus took a very different cup. The cup of his relationship with the Father. The cup of his righteousness. The cup of his perfection sat with his believe with his followers around a table and he looked at them come on you never saw it like this and he said this is my cup I'll take your cup and you take my cup I'll drink your cup and you drink my cup drink it drink it to the same degree that I drank yours drink all of
this morning in communion. And as we do, we're going to drink from the cup of the Lord. And I want you to see it maybe like you've never seen it before. I want you to discover the revelation of justification, different than forgiveness. I am forgiven. Christ's righteousness is given to me. And then the gavel is swung, and God the judge says, I see you perfect through my son. Can you drink that cup today? Can you say yes to that? If we believe that Christ has fully drank our cup, then we must also fully drink his cup of acceptance. Do you lack shalom? Are you anxious about something right now? Fearful? Worried? Caught up in your own stuff? Running? Striving? This is your moment to slow down. Come on, you need it. This is your moment to pause. This is your moment to wait. And I believe that the Spirit of God is going to meet us here. And that as we get out of our seats in just a minute and take the bread and dip it in the drink and eat it, we are saying, maybe like never before, God, I'm not going to try to earn my way to you. also repent of your righteousness because for many of us we're holding on to how good we've been and how much we've done and Jesus said only the poor in spirit can come to me only those who admit their own spiritual poverty can have peace with God are you here today and you need to be brought into relationship with your creator are you here today and you'd say Justin I'm far from God and I don't have confidence that he's forgiven me justified me and I need to turn my life over to him today. It's one step of faith. That's what it is. It's getting on the plane. See, getting on the plane doesn't seem so hard. You don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to have a million dollars. All you got to do is sit down. Getting on the plane. If you're here today, I want to pray for you. With your eyes closed just for a moment, I want you to take these next 20, 30 seconds. Search your heart right now. Do you have peace with God? Are you right with God? Because one act of faith one act of faith can change everything. If that's you and you say, I need to give my life to Jesus today, I want you just to stick up your hand quickly. You can put it right back down when you're done. Say, I need to trust him. I need to put my faith in Christ. God bless you. God bless you. Put your hands down. God bless you. Put your hands down. Anybody else say, that's me. I need to put my faith in Christ. God bless you. You can put your hands down. Anybody else say, that's me. surrender to God. Just say, Jesus, I need you. 
I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again. Take my life. Forgive me. Justify me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need peace with God. I accept Jesus. That's what I need. every person who's a follower of Christ to participate in communion now. And after you partake of the bread and the drink, just find your way back to your seat. The ushers will dismiss row by row in just a moment. We're going to have just some time to worship God and to partake in communion. And so uh, when they dismiss your row, you can come out. I do want to say this. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're just checking all this out, I encourage you, you don't have any pressure to participate in communion. Communion is something Christians do. Honestly, it would be um, not honest to yourself or honest to God if you participate in communion if you're not a Christian. But you may not attend this church regularly. That's fine. But if you have put your faith in Christ, I urge you do participate in this because Christ commands us to regularly remember him through this sacrament. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll dismiss row by row. Father, we believe today. And I believe that you are bringing peace like we've never known before upon your people. I believe that anxiety is fleeing now in Jesus' name. I believe that uh, mental distortions in our minds are falling off right now in Jesus' name. I believe and I decree right now that fear, especially fear of man, is breaking off of people right now. This worry of what other people think is falling off right now in Jesus' name. These lower court decisions that say you're too old, you're too young, you're too short, you're too tall, you're too skinny, you're too fat, you're too stupid, you're too smart, all the lies, I break them off right now in Jesus' name, and I decree in the name of Jesus that having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. In Jesus' name, I decree over every open heart and every believer today, the peace, the shalom of God, come upon your people today, Lord. In Jesus' name, let peace rule in our hearts by faith. In Jesus' name, and Lord, as we participate in communion this morning, I pray that you would solidify the truth of your grace, the truth of justice justification by faith and that we would cling to the fact that you have decreed that we are correct in your sight in Jesus mighty name. For more resources and information, visit ourcitychurch.org.